Welcome to 2016, the year of identity, is that we have been following after a significant series through being Jesus, soaking in who he is, what he did, how he acted, what he thought about, how he advanced the kingdom, how he manifested the kingdom. After baking in that for just over two years, it is time that we understand how much that soaks in and changes who we are. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this, who he is defines who we are. Who he is defines who we are. What I have found is that um, maybe more than any other time, I've found that the Christian church worldwide is struggling with an identity crisis. We don't know who we are. We don't operate from our safe place in Christ. We don't understand, we don't operate as children of God. We don't seem to operate from a place of peace. We don't tend to operate from a place of grace and forgiveness. We don't tend to operate from a place of authority and power. I, we're still praying a lot for God to give us stuff and we still haven't even understood what he's gave us already. Therefore, I believe that we need to grow in the area of allowing him to establish rock-solid foundation of identity. Who are we in light of who he is? Once we have that locked down, then we're able to reach out appropriately. Then we're able to minimize the drama. Then we're able to soothe our spirits and calm our minds. Then we're able to battle things such as anxiety and depression. Then we're able to navigate through relationship. Identity is critical. Do you know who God has made you to be? Well, I think that there's more we can learn. What you're going to hear a lot this year is me preaching to me. I need to know this stuff. I need to be reminded that who he is defines who we are. So here's how the year is going to go. I'm not going to lay it all out for you. That'd be boring. But we're going to start out with five topicals to lay the foundation. The first of which is today, this morning. In the middle of all that, one of the topicals, of course, is Easter, right? So we have Easter loaded in there. Then we will begin going through a series of books. The first book that we are going to go into is a book that has never been taught here for as long as we've been in uh, existence, roughly around 20 years, and that is the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, In the Old Testament... There is a book of wisdom literature, and if you've ever read it, you go, dang, that's the most depressing book I've ever read. You may well be right. So not only are we going to understand the book of Ecclesiastes, why Solomon wrote something like that, what was he really trying to say, we are also going to take the cross and lay it over the top of Ecclesiastes and see this is what the world offers, this is what Jesus offers. This is what the world says we are, this is what Christ says we are. So we are going to go through an in-depth study into the book of Ecclesiastes. We have been in the New Testament for quite some time. It's time to get some Old Testament back into our diet. You know what I'm saying? So I love this kind of stuff. So I will be revealing more and more as the weeks unfold. But let me also tell you one other change that we are going to be doing to the sermons and the lessons. And that is we're going to break them into two parts. Not all the time, but a lot of the time, we are going to begin our services with a corporate identity shortened devotional. In other words, from three to 15 minutes, I'm going to talk about what we 
are as a family. If we're going to talk about the Bridgeway family, if we're going to talk about our family rules and guidelines, how do we want to act? How do we want to treat each other? What are we really about? What are we trying to bake into each other? That is what we're going to spend the beginning of each message on. It will begin with things like we are, and then I would follow that up, or we will, or we should, whatever it is. I'm just saying that I want to shape our culture more intentionally so that we don't just have a bunch of renegades running around out there. I want to set the tone and say, we will praise this. We will shame that. That's how you build culture. So I'm going to share a little bit with that. It will be followed by the message, of course, that talks about our internal life with Christ. For if we get our internal life right, then the external life has to fall in line. Once again, I'm not interested in treating the symptoms as much as I'm interested in treating the root. If we have a root problem of identity on the inside, then indeed we're going to have actions and behaviors that are all kind of messed up on the outside. Therefore, we are going to also deliver to you some sneak peeks into some of the discipleship tools that we've been working on over the last two years. Those will be sprinkled out to you and you would begin to learn what we are training up our leaders into. So, are you excited about it? Man, it's going to be an awesome year, I will tell you that. So let us begin with talking about who we are as a family and what we believe. Over the last year and a half, we have crystallized out five core values of our church. Five things that we said, if we were to talk about what Bridgeway either is about or desires to be about, there are five subjects that are critical to our heart. Those five core values are knowing God... Loving generously, building family, partnering missionally, and developing disciples. If we were to talk about what is most important to our heart, those are the five things. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be laying them out one by one and telling you what I mean by that. And we begin with knowing God. Who you think God is, is the most important thought of your heart. If you believe God to be mean and nasty, you will be mean and nasty. If you believe God to be judgmental, you will tend to live your life under a microscope. If you view God yet as gracious, then you will extend grace to someone else. If you see God as loving, then you in turn will desire to be loving. If you believe God to be wanting the best for you, then Satan has less opportunity to tell you that God is not good. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. So, out of all of our core values, there is one that needs to be called number one, and that is knowing God. So, we believe as a family that we must know God. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to give you three things. Three a little bit more practical and detailed examples on what I mean by that. If we were to say, we want you to know God, how is that demonstrated? It would be demonstrated, in my opinion, by three things primarily. Number one, daily connection and intimacy. Daily connection and intimacy. We as a family believe that a relationship with God is a daily occurrence. When I married my wife, I did not get married merely on Wednesdays and Thursdays. I am married every day of the week. 
Therefore, the relationship continues through every day of the week, and we don't just take days off. There is no such thing as having a relationship with God of the, oh yeah, I forgot about him for the last five days. There's no such thing as a relationship with God that says, it's been about three weeks and I haven't really considered him once. That actually is not a relationship, or certainly not a healthy relationship. Therefore, when we talk about knowing God, we mean a daily connection and intimacy. Here's what I mean. Relationship through prayer, through reading God's word, through private and corporate worship, and listening to the Holy Spirit. The Bible calls that abiding. That's a little too fancy of a term for me. So hanging out with, doing life with, being a part of, being connected to, whatever you want to call it, that's really what we're talking about. It's about faithful walking with him in loyalty over time, allowing the richness of relationship to rise up. It's about connecting at the core and drawing all of our life, power, love, and joy from him. The Bible refers to that as what? He is the vine, we are the branches. If you are connected to me, you will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So if we are to be believers, if we are to be Christians, if we are to be ambassadors of the kingdom, we must always be, meaning in a daily deep way, connected to the source. Yeah? Doesn't that make sense? So everything you're going to hear us talk about is with the expectation of developing a constant daily relationship the whole skipping the whole i'm in the kingdom i'm out of the kingdom i decide to be a part of the family i don't decide part of the family that is not part of our culture that is not what we're trying to do we are not going to praise the the current idea that well i only show up with a spiritual family once every five weeks that is the current trend for american christians uh we're not going to support that we are going to continue to talk as if you are consistently with us. That's just kind of how it works. And if you're not with us, that means you're still connected to God at all times. Church and God are not the exact same thing. So it's more important that you have a daily connection with the Lord and you're engaging with him more than you ever even attend church. You understand what I mean? Number two, when I say knowing God, I mean this. Passionate pursuit of understanding his nature and will. Passionate pursuit of understanding his nature and will. What do I mean by that? That we are lifelong, humble, and eager learners. Here's something that we will not praise in our culture. An attitude of, yeah, yeah, I already know all that. No, you don't. Here's the other thing. Whether you are in the children's ministry, you got something to learn. Whether you're, not, you're in our bridge builder senior ministry, you have something to learn. You never arrive until you walk through those pearly gates. You understand what I mean? I'm about to go teach for another church a series that is going to talk to a group of people that are a little bit further along in life. And my catchphrase for them is, Jesus is just getting started. Why? Because we all look at the story of Joshua taking the promised land, and we go, oh yeah, he's the young one. No, he's only young because Moses is 120. You need to understand, those were partners. That means he didn't start taking the promised land until he was much further in life. 
In other words, God has an awful lot for all of us to do. So what we want is lifelong eager learners. Till you're dead, you ain't done. You know what I'm talking about? All right, praise God. It says it's about this. It's about significantly learning about the one that you love the most. Many of us still view the Bible as a textbook and therefore we avoid it. It's a love letter. It's an explanation of how we ought to live. It's an unpacking of what God has already done and therefore we have freedom. It would be sad if you said, I have a love of my life. And I said, what are they like? And you said, I don't really know. That would be weird. So if we say that we love God the most, if indeed Christianity is relationally based, should we not know about the one that we love? And if we don't know, shouldn't we want to know? That's why we read the word. We read the word for relationship connection. We read the word to know about the one that we love. What is God like? What is God not like? Right? These types of things. It also means it's about meaningful reflection and dedicated study. There are some things in life you've got to fight to own. This is not a casual, yeah, yeah, I can grab this in my daily bread and move on. That's not the type of walk we're talking about. We're talking about there's some things you got to do that you don't always necessarily like to do. Sometimes there's discipline involved to, in order to learn and to grow. So it means times of reflection and dedicated study. Jesus designed his parables so they were hard to understand. Why? So you had to get next to him to figure it out. It was always a desire for relationship. In the same way, there's things in the Bible you're not going to learn without study. So you got to put in the study. And also, meaningful reflection means that you actually carve out time in your schedule to reflect on what God is doing. I believe the number one enemy of Bridgeway Christian Church is busyness. I think it has destroyed all of our ability to grow spiritually. Either we're going to cave to that or we're going to push back. But somehow, some way, we've got to grow. That means times of reflection and times of purposeful study. It also means knowing him well enough to answer on his behalf. A lot of what you read is not for your personal development. It's for your neighbor who you're going to talk to in about three hours. A lot of your reading is for someone else that's going to ask you a question. We got to have that in our minds. And then finally, it's not just book learning, but experiential living as well. If we all become expert Bible trivia people, we failed. The Bible was written that we might live different. Some things you're not going to know unless you walk it. Some things you're not going to know unless you experience it. The Bible is replete with God saying, and when I set you free, you will know that I am God. Once you walk through an experience with me, you'll know me. Too many of us are still staying in our study, sitting in our rocking chair, and trying to figure out who God is. There's an awful lot that you need to learn by doing it. Trust will never be learned from a book. You got to get in there and you got to do it. Sometimes you got to fail. Sometimes you got to succeed. But there's so much that God wants to teach us when we're in the mix. Sometimes God will only teach us if we're on the way. If we only wait back to know everything, that's never going to happen. We have to engage with him and live daily with him. 
So beyond those two things, when I say knowing God, I mean daily connection and intimacy. I mean passionate pursuit of understanding his nature and will. And then finally, number three, as a family, he is our highest priority. He is our highest priority. Bridgeway Christian Church knows Jesus Christ as Lord and King. That means what? It means it's his agenda. It's his way. He's the main character of the story. It's for his glory. It's his kingdom. We do have a leader of this church, and it's Jesus Christ. Therefore, he has to be highest priority. Everything that we do in this church, everything that we do outside of this church must be done with, is it best for the Lord? Is it best for Christ? Does it glorify him? Does it minister for him on his behalf? Are we blessing the world for him? Everything is put through that lens. What we cannot do is ever fall prey to building our own kingdom and not his kingdom. So what do we do as a family? We submit to the father's will and we say, yes, Lord, when he calls. Amen. Amen. Take out a Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter four. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. If you need a Bible, it should be one under the seat in front of you. It's page 859. That'll get you there a little faster. I want to talk a little bit about our internal lives and our identity in Christ. Here's the irony. We're turning into the Gospels. You're thinking, Pastor Lance, did we not just leave them? Why would we go back to... Egypt, back into the Being Jesus series. Can't we just move on? Well, here's the reality. The reality is this story was taught in January of 2014 by Pastor Ryan Haynes. I didn't teach it. It's my turn. <clears throat> Anywhere that we deviate in this story from what you are reading in front of you in Luke's account means that I'm adding in either Matthew and Mark's point of view or I am going to be adding in a bit of commentary. So you can follow along with me. We're primarily in Luke's gospel. However, this is a popular story you're familiar with. We are only going to focus on one element of it. All right. It begins like this. And then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and immediately was led up and driven by the Holy Spirit out deeper into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and he was with the wild animals. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, Satan, the adversary came, the devil accuser and said to him, if you are the son of God, meaning, and you are, since you are with all those privileges, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered him, it is written, in Deuteronomy 8.3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That speaks to priority. And again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain, which I believe a literal place, but gives him a vision. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory in a moment of time. And he said to Jesus, to you, I will give all this authority and all these and their glory for it has been delivered to me. By who? by God. And I will give it to whom I will. Now we know that that's what strings attached, right? But if you then will fall down and worship me, submit to my authority, it will all be yours. 
And Jesus answered him, it is written in Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle, a very high ledge of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for we're playing the Bible game, for it is written in Psalm 91, 11, and 12, he, the father, will command his angels concerning you, the Messiah, to guard you, and on their hands the angels will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, God protects the Messiah, why don't we use that? And Jesus answered him again, and it is said and written in Deuteronomy 6, 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every type of temptation, Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. And then the devil departed from him until an opportune time. And behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. And Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. I want to focus on those three temptations. I'm going to be using some insights from two very intelligent pastors, Mike Breen and Ben Sternkey. So if you hear anything that is extraordinarily brilliant, I ripped it off. <laughs> Praise God. What were those three temptations? Let's recap them in case you missed it. Make stones into bread. All kingdoms can be yours now and throw yourself down and let God catch you, right? Those were the three temptations. Did you realize that in the Garden of Eden, Eve had to go through a three-step process in her fall. That it says that when she saw the fruit that Satan or the snake had pointed out, it says, and she saw the fruit that it was what? That it was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eye, and that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Then she ate. She fell in all three forms. We are told that we have three enemies that stand against us, the world, the flesh, the devil, right? It also talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. In other words, throughout all history, there have been the same three temptations, and it always seems to work. Why would you change your method if it's super effective? It took down Eve. It's taken down everyone else 100% in the entire world but Jesus. Jesus stood against those three temptations. How in the world did he do that? And you go, well, he was God. Oh, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. That means he had to go through it like we do. All right. So how did he stand? Well, what were the temptations? What are these three great temptations? Well, the turning the stones into bread was a temptation to use power for personal gain and alleviation of need. Number two, all kingdoms can be yours is to avoid the cross and you can get the world. Number three was throw yourself down to test the provision and protection of God and to impress everyone watching to make a great demonstration of being the Messiah. All right. What is temptation? My favorite definition of all time for temptation is this. It is the process of meeting a legitimate need by illegitimate means. The process of meeting a legitimate need by illegitimate means. For example, 
we all have a legitimate need for love and affirmation and attention. But when we manipulate people to get it, we have failed. When we consume people to fill it, we have failed. We all have a need for food, but when we allow it to dominate and master our lives, we have failed. There are legitimate needs, but how we fulfill those needs is really the crux of the matter. And and the mistake that we make is that in our minds, we try to put sin in one category and life in another category when we know full well they blend. And that's why we have constant temptation in front of us. It's stuff we're walking through every day. It's stuff that we have in our bodies going, man, I want that. There's a reason why sin is so tempting. Because, man, it looks like it's going to fulfill something we desperately want. In other words, there are God-given appetites, but there are satanic shortcuts to get it. So we need to begin to unpack this stuff and pull off the wrapping and start going, oh, that's the problem. I refer to temptation as shortcuts. Shortcuts. In other words, I believe it's junk food. We all realize that when you are starving and you get home or it's late night and you want a snack, we all know that it would be far better to go get a lean turkey sandwich, but a Twinkie will do. You understand what I mean? I look at sin like a Twinkie. Now, here's why. Because Twinkies will give you an instant buzz, right? You like that. And it'll shove something in your stomach so you don't have that little alarm going off going, I'm still hungry, right? Now, sometimes you got to eat a couple Twinkies, but you know what I mean, right? Is that you're shoving something into your body that instantly makes you feel better. What happens if you only eat Twinkies? You get sick. You become malnourished and anemic. Your body cannot be supported by that. So why in the world would we feed ourselves that? Because it helps us now. What we want is instant alleviation of problem. Most of our prayers are instant alleviation of problem prayers. We want it to go away. Whatever does not make us feel good, we want it to go away. So Satan comes in and says, you know, there is a long-term way to solve this, but that sounds like a drag. Why don't we just fix it now? That ultimately is the problem. Are we going to do it God's way or are we going to do it our way? If we do it our way, we're going to get instant gratification, but we'll pay for it later. If we do it his way, we will delay gratification, but have ultimate satisfaction. Is it any wonder that all addictions and temptations come from things like, for example, alcoholism? The most common triggers of alcoholism are halt. Y'all know this? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Those are the triggers to alcoholism. Why? Because you now need something. You now look out and go, I don't feel good about me. I don't feel good about my body. I don't feel good about what's going on inside me. And so now I'm craving and I need something to solve it. 
these same types of triggers when we all of a sudden start feeling a longing or a lacking or a need or a hurt or a pain, whatever it is, we then try to solve something and we want to solve it now. That's why Satan has such a good business going. He runs in the business of now. Hmm. All right. So let's go through those three temptations and pull them apart. The first temptation of turning stones into bread is the temptation of appetite. The temptation of appetite. What do I mean? We are looking for something to satisfy. We're looking for something to push into the void of craving, of need. Unfortunately, what it turns us into is consumers. Consumers not just of money, consumers not just of things, consumers of people. It's somehow, some way, I need to grab you, make you less human, and put you into me that I feel better about myself. That is not the way of Christ to use other people, to consume other people, to harm other people that you might feel better. God given appetites, satanic shortcuts. They become, some say, like noisy children clamoring for our attention in our lives. You all know what a craving is, right? It's like a noisy child clamoring for our attention. Here's the problem. If you spoil them, they'll control you. If you spoil them, they'll control you. Once they're out of control and now your need ratchets up, then God doesn't seem to be enough. And we start feeling, my father doesn't want the best for me. What I need to do is take care of this myself. I need to indulge my appetite. Y'all know where I'm following with this? Is this not touching any of your lives? Nobody wants to admit it. All right, fantastic. One person, <laughs> praise God. Here we go. Here's the other problem. <clears throat> we think that by indulging it, we'll calm it down. But unfortunately, that's not true. It only reinforces when we cave. In other words, if you blow off steam, it doesn't solve your anger problem. Your anger problem's still there. How many times have you eaten a meal, like me, and you said, I'll never eat again? <laughs> have, you, have you ever had one of those? Many times it involves pasta, something like that, right? Where somehow you shove into every possible pocket into your body, and you literally say, I don't think I will ever eat again. Sure enough, you eat again. Why? Because the way these are built are built on cycles and it will fire off an alarm when it's time to eat again. What I need you to understand is that appetite alarms are set by you. You go, no, 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 that's just a biological thing. No, it's not. It is a biological thing, but it's not independent from you. You set your alarms. Let me tell you why. Different cultures have different times of eating. And so their body alarms go off at different times. Ours is on a three meal tiered system, unless you have designed out more of a grazing method where you have little snacks throughout the day. Whatever you do consistently will set an alarm in your body that when you don't do that, it's going to let you know. And you go, well, what, what does that have to do with anything? If you fast for longer than about three days, what you find is your body goes, I keep telling you and you're not listening to me, forget it, and the alarm goes off. You keep thinking it's a natural thing that at 12.30 or 12 o'clock, an alarm goes off and says it's lunchtime. You set that alarm, not your body. It is our job to reset certain alarms. When we do uh, habit patterns, 
we are saying to our bodies, hey, can you set a quick alarm for that? Try quitting smoking. And when you try to quit smoking, there is not just the nicotine problem, there's the hand-to-mouth problem. Meaning that your body has an alarm that says, I need to grab something and put it near my mouth. So one of the tricks in trying to quit smoking is sunflower seeds. That you grab something and you put it near your mouth. Why? Because you've set an alarm and a habit pattern that needs to be redesigned. In all of us, we are doing this all over the place with every appetite. I've set the premise in my body that after any meal, whether healthy or unhealthy, I must have something sweet at the end. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. That doesn't always work out so hard. Now, there are some of us that says, when I feel lonely and it's late, carton of ice cream. You understand what I'm saying? All right. In other words, we're setting those alarms. We need to reset certain alarms because they're not appropriate. They're not right. If we feed them too much, they become out of control and too big and we make a monster we can't put away. That's actually where um, compulsion leads to addiction. We got that? All right, let's keep moving forward. By the way, when you don't get enough and you don't think there is enough, you scramble around because you think that there's scarcity and you start taking from other people and it causes problems. Number two, the ambition temptation. First one was appetite. Second one is ambition. You can have all the kingdoms now. Jesus, you can get what you want. You want to be an influencer in the world. You want to take care of people. I'll give you all the kingdoms. You don't need the cross. I will hand you earth. All right. The problem with that, again, is competition because it's all about achievement. The tell on whether or not you are struggling with this is are you obsessed with always moving forward, being the best, and performing? If you perform for God's attention, if you perform to feel better about yourself, if you can't chill out because there's more to be done, this is your problem. It's an ambition temptation. Whose kingdom are you building? You can't build God's kingdom if you're building your own. That's a problem. And when other people are in your way, you must discard them. You cannot celebrate in their joys. You cannot celebrate in their victories because it didn't happen to you, right? That's the struggle. And it is a distraction constantly from kingdom purposes. We're so worried about advancing us, we can't even focus on Jesus. We need to realize that there's something more in life than winning. There's something more in life than achieving. There's something more in life than what we deem as success. We have a need to control our world around us so things go our way. What was Jesus' solution to that? He said, take up your cross and follow me. I want you to drop your agenda. I want you to pick mine up and I want you to walk. Well, Jesus, that means I'm not going to get my stuff done. You're absolutely right. He said, I want you to take on my cross for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Your performance-based system and trying to be successful is going to kill you. Yours is way too heavy. I need you to drop yours and I need you to take on mine because mine's easier and it's healthier. The third temptation that Jesus faced was the idea of throwing yourself down from the temple, being impressive, testing God by his protection and provision, all that kind of stuff. 
it can be linked to an approval and affirmation temptation. Approval and affirmation. The problem with identity is it can't come from within. You can't simply tell yourself who you should be. People say, you know, you need to do what's right for you. You need to do what you say is good. You will not validate that opinion because you know you can manipulate it. You're not going to ever validate how you feel you need someone else externally to validate it to say that it's true. So who is validating your identity? It's coming from somewhere. Is it coming from the news? Is it coming from advertisements? Is it coming from other people around you? Is it coming from your spouse? Is it coming from your kids? Is it coming from your parents? Is it coming from your boyfriend, your girlfriend? Who is it that is shaping you and telling you how you are? There is only one person allowed to tell you who you are. That's Jesus, not anybody else. And we must validate his opinion. Because we start treating Jesus like our parents. Our parents say, you are smart, you are kind, you are important. And we're like, you're just saying that because you're my mom. And we don't validate it. But what if it's God? The lie is that I'll finally be filled up if other people approve me. That's why we clamor for celebrity. I want more people to tell me I'm okay. Ultimately, it leaves us dependent and desperate and steals away our courage. The question is, will we be friends of Christ or friends with the world, right? The difficulty is that when you look for approval from others, they only have two responses they can give you. Either criticism or praise but either one will destroy us. If they criticize us, we collapse. If they praise us, we blow up. You understand what I mean? That's why we can't rely on other people. I heard this phrase and I thought it was powerful. There are many times that we want to be with people not because we love them, but because we need them to feel good about ourselves. Does that describe any of your relationships? then you have a problem here. So how was Jesus able to resist what no one else ever in all of history has been able to resist? I believe there are four things. Number one, I believe that he knew the goodness of his father. I believe that Satan could never convince him that God was a bad guy. I believe that he knew that his father knew what he needed and he craved and would get him the best of what was right. He knew that God was enough. Number two, he knew who he was. His identity was solid. Because right before the desert temptation was the baptism. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He knew his identity and didn't move from there. You too have been called a child of God. But somehow you're letting people move you off your place. Jesus didn't. Number three, he responded to every attack with it is written. He knew what was true and went back to that bedrock. Do you know enough of the Bible to shut the enemy down? Do you know enough of the Bible to tell you what is right? Because if you don't, you need to learn it. And what I mean is, is that there is an opening that Satan's been picking on you in. I want you to do a Bible study in that area and lock it down. 
say, no, I'm not going to let you push me around. I will learn something true, right? And then number four, he had intimacy with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus withdrew, he actually felt recharged. Many of us, we withdraw and we feel worse than when we started. He knew how to hear from the Holy Spirit and be affirmed on a consistent basis. Do we have that? Maybe not yet. The core solution is three things. The core solution is for all of us to know the Father, to know that He is the source of all things, that He is good, that He loves us, that He is the source of satisfaction and purpose. And out of that flows our identity as children of God. We derive who we are and how we live from Him. He says that we are loved and chosen and valuable. He says that He empowers us by His indwelling Spirit. And He says we have more than enough. From that, we then obey His voice And we carry out what he desires by who he built us to be through his power and not our own. What's so critical about that is you cannot get the order wrong. It must go father, identity, obedience. Because too many of us are trying to obey the father to get an identity. That is incorrect. We serve the Lord because he's already done everything for us. We do not serve the Lord to get love. We serve the Lord because we're loved. We do not serve the Lord in order to get his attention. We serve the Lord because we already have his attention. We do not serve the Lord to get saved. We serve the Lord because we are saved. We cannot misread that because if we do, we live in this performance religion and that's not acceptable. It will wipe you out and it's not correct. So therefore, from the Father, do we know His character and nature? If so, then who then are we? And if we can wrap that tightly, then we will do everything for the right motives. And it can sustain us. Here's the close. There are many people and institutions that want to tell you who you are. But there is only one who should be allowed to tell you who you are. The one that designed you. The one that redeemed you the one that is working on you, and the one that will glorify you. Only him and him alone. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your beautiful love and through you, God, doing everything that we need. That Jesus, when you said it is finished, you meant it is finished. And that all things were purchased there on the cross. Therefore, Holy Spirit, we can run out with you and do partnership and fun and joy and heavy lifting because you're with us. That we no longer are trying to do a religious reach out to you. You reached all the way down and you grabbed us and saved us. From that safe position. From the position of being a child of God. From a position of the resources of heaven. From the position of already being loved and having extravagant grace. Because that has already been done. We can go out into the world and bring your joy. We can go out into the world and bring your blessing. We can go out into the world and impact it for the kingdom. Oh God, get us the right priorities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
satisfy you. That is King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the lavishing of your love and identity and purpose and meaning and that we are secure in you, that we are held tight in you, that we are your children, not because of what we did, but because of your rescue and your transformation. Lord, may every single one of your children in this place move out from here knowing full well that things are right in their soul because you made them right. And then they can carry out all of your commands with joy, with love, with excitement, without fear, and with knowing that they are partnering with their King Father. I just pray, Lord, that you would take us away to and teach us to stand up against the temptation of the enemy, that, Lord, that we would not allow our appetites to drive us, but we would allow you, that we would not allow our ambitions to drive us, but just you, that we would not allow our approval of others to drive us, but only you you. God, put us right back on the rock where we need to be, that we might be the children of God once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful night, and we will see you next time. Our prayer team is here for you.